Good morning, Genesis. Uh, it's so good to be with you. Uh, my name is Brad Sarian. For those of you who, who don't know me, I'm a pastor with Restored Church up in LA in the San Fernando Valley. Um, and yeah, I obviously wish that my wife and I could be with you all today, uh, but this season has us all over the place and on video and um, wishing we could be together. But uh, it's a privilege to, to be with you um, digitally and uh, as we begin this new series, looking at who we are as Genesis. Uh, I'm excited to dive in. So I'm going to pray and then we'll jump on in together. Uh, Father, thank you. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace over us that as we um, yeah, are, are spread out, whether it's in living rooms or in bedrooms or um, yeah, wherever, backyards, Jesus, we, we pray uh, that we would be able to encounter you this morning. I would hear more clearly who you are and we'd see uh, just how beautiful you are. We'd live our lives in, in that reality, Jesus. Uh, Spirit, would you work in our hearts, um, that you would encourage us where we need that encouragement and you'd convict us. Uh, where we need that conviction. Uh, we need you. Open our eyes in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Um, well, I uh, met Chris and Merrill um, about eight years ago. I went to a church planters gathering. And, uh, my buddy Andy Rogers, who's the lead pastor of Restored Down in San Diego, uh, he said, hey man, I'm going to this church planting thing. Um, you know, I've heard about it from this bunch of different people. You know, there's about 40 or so people that meet and uh, would you come with me? And, and at that time, I was a high school pastor of a church in Long Beach and had zero um, knowledge of what even church planting was, but Andy was my buddy and I wanted to hang out with him. So uh, I go to this gathering and um, I start hearing things that I've never heard before. Uh, and halfway through this uh, gathering, Chris gets up and he just says, hey, you know, if you're new with us today, uh, would you just stand up and share a little bit about yourself? And so um, awkwardly, I stood up and, and shared a little bit about who I was and, and what was going on. I think at that point, we had just been married, my wife and I, for about a year. And um, Chris said, hey, do you have any plans of planting a church? Do you desire to plant a church? And I was like, oh, no, like, I'm just here with my buddy. Uh, we got no plans for that. Just kind of excited, excited to be here uh, type vibe. And Chris responded. Uh, he said, if you hang out with us long enough, you'll plant a church. Uh, and I awkwardly sat down in my chair um, and six months later, my wife and I, we moved down to San Diego to help Andy and Jackie Rogers plant the first restored church down there. And it's really been um, through Chris and Merrill, who've just been such a blessing to us, uh, have taught us so much about marriage and ministry um, and doing those things together. And, and so uh, it's a joy just to, to be with you all um, this morning. So we're going to dive in. We have a, a new series that we're kind of putting a pause on Mark. If you've been with us over the last... Um, few months uh, that going through Mark, we're, we're going to pause and look at who are we? What, what's our identity as Genesis? Um, and, and I get the privilege to start off by talking about the gospel, um, that, that ultimately we are a gospel people. Um, and, and depending on where you're at, if you grew up in the church or you're brand new to this thing, um, that word gospel, you, you maybe have heard it before, um, but it's a lot of confusion around it. Uh, for many of us, if you did grow up in the church, you hear the word gospel and you, you probably tune out. You're like, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I got that. Yep, week one, the gospel, we're good. Um, there, there's kind of a movement, the gospel-centered movement over the last decade or so. Um, and, and the language around gospel-centered is, is somewhat unhelpful uh, because I've never met a Christian who's like, yeah, I'm not gospel-centered, right? 
Um, like every church, every Christian believes um, that their lives and their churches are centered on the gospel. Um, and, and, and the sad reality is that's just not true. Um, and I don't just point fingers at churches and people that their lives aren't centered on the gospel. Um, I'm that story. I was raised in the church. I don't remember a single Sunday not going to a church gathering, a Lutheran church from birth to eighth grade, and then going to different churches throughout high school. And um, it was at 18 years old that I was invited to to join a staff team as a junior high intern for, for preaching. Uh, and so at 18, I preached my first sermon and began preaching at 18 consistently. Um, and, and it took two years, at 20 years old, for Jesus to save me. Uh, I was one of those kids who just grew up kind of a Pharisee, uh, very self-righteous, did a lot of the good stuff on the outside, but my heart was far from Jesus. I knew a lot of right theology, but I never trusted in the finished person and work of Jesus. And so uh, I, at 20 years old, got saved, which was really confusing because if you would ask me at 19, are you gospel-centered? Like, of course I'm gospel-centered. My problem was I wasn't even saved. So how could I have been uh, gospel-centered if I wasn't saved? And, and this is very common um, in the American church and really uh, the global church. I think Satan's desire is to blind us to the beauty of Jesus, as Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians. And so um, I, as we talk this morning about the gospel, would I, I'm just going to ask you, would you kind of take your preconceived notions off and just go, okay, what, what is this gospel? Right? This guy's already said gospel 50 times. Is he going to define it? What, what is it? Uh, because it's so important for us to grasp, if we don't know what the gospel is, the best place we can be is in acknowledging. I'm not even sure what that even means, right? Um, at 18, 19, uh, kind of in my exciting stage of religion and, and trying to lead and ultimately trying to earn God's favor, uh, I was with a, a bunch of my college buddies and we would go down to Skid Row in LA and we'd hand out sandwiches to uh, men and women who were experiencing homelessness and uh, just trying to love on those people. And one night uh, I was walking, we'd kind of get paired off with in groups of two and I was walking with a gal um, and it's like midnight, 1 a.m., whatever it is, and we're walking and uh, she sees a, a man who's kind of laying down on cardboard and in a sleeping bag. She says, hey, sir, can, can I give you a sandwich? And, um, and, and the man says, yeah, I'd love a sandwich. And she says, uh, can, can I share the gospel with you? <laughs> and, um, and to our surprise, this man said, sure. Um, and this was the first time ever. Usually it's like, ah, I'm good, all right? I heard the gospel or just take the sandwich, get out of here. Um, and he says, yeah, yeah, you can share the gospel with me. Uh, and she, she looks at me and she's like, do it. And I was like, you do it. Like, I didn't ask. You You were the one who asked the dude if you could share the gospel. So, And, and she does her best to explain what the gospel was. But in that moment, it was, it was clarifying for both of us that when we had the opportunity to share the gospel, we weren't even sure what to say. It was kind of like, God loves you. And like, there's heaven and you want that? Like, uh, it was just a confusing mess uh, of theology and heresy and kind of like, what, what is the truth of the gospel? And so maybe you've heard the word gospel a million times, but how would you even articulate it? And, and, and for us as a church, being a, a Christian isn't about you as an individual, but about us being a community of people centered on the gospel. And, and so what I want to do um, with our time is, is just give a few misconceptions of the gospel and then clarifying statements around the gospel. And then hopefully at the end, we'll be able to just see Jesus a little bit more clearly. And so um, it's essential that we have clarity on this. It is absolutely essential that we have clarity on this. So if you have your Bible, uh, open up to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Um, 
The Bible does not act as a dictionary, which is really important for us. You can't just kind of go in the glossary and find gospel and then you open it and gospel's there and it's like a clear cut answer. Um, the, the Bible defines the gospel many, many different ways throughout, uh, but the most important thing to grasp about the gospel is that it's good news. It's the good news of what God has done, but it's not just good news of what he's done. What, what the gospel is not, the gospel is not simply a proposition that we consent to, but as Galatians 1 is going to show us that the gospel is a person we're called to. The, the gospel is a person we are called to. So Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, Paul's writing to the church at Galatia that's struggling. They're kind of moving on from the, the person of Jesus, moving on from the gospel. And this is what Paul says in, in verse 6. He says, I am amazed that you are so quickly turning away from him who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are some who are troubling you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Okay, this is one of my favorite passages to help us understand what the gospel is. It's, the gospel is not just this thing that you answer, write answers. It's not a proposition that you're like, yep, A, B, C, check, check, check. It's a person we're called to. Paul says, you're, you're, you're turning away from him, God, to a different gospel. So, so, so as clearly as Paul can put it, the gospel is God. The good news of what Jesus has accomplished is not us figuring out the right answers to a theology exam. The good news of the gospel about being a Christian is that you get God. He's the person that we're called to. And it's so easy for Christians for us to forget this or move on from this as the church in Galatia was doing. They're like, yeah, 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 the gospel of Jesus, God, we got that stuff. Now we need to move on to more important things. And Paul's going, there's nothing more important. Like getting God is the good news. Getting God is your joy. Everything in the gospel, your salvation, your sanctification, your future glorification, all those fancy words, even forgiveness and not walking in shame or guilt, all of those are so that you can experience God. God forgives us so that he can get us. He doesn't just forgive you. Sometimes the, the gospel is explained in such a way. It's like, you're a mess. You need to be forgiven. God wants to forgive you. It's like, cool. But that, there's nothing relational about that. He may just forgive me, just kind of like let me off the hook. The good news of the gospel is that God forgives me because he wants intimacy with me. And yet so many Christians view the gospel as a proposition. It's like a Scantron test, right? I don't think anyone would necessarily say this, but I think most Christians really believe that if you just get the right answers, then you'll go to heaven. And so kind of the idea, I think, in most American Christians uh, is this, you know, you die whenever it is at 110, at nice age, and in your hospital bed, whatever it is, which many of us falsely believe, you're going to die. And then you show up to heaven and there's a gate there. And then kind of, you know, St. Peter or somebody hands you a Scantron test. Like, Let's see how you did. And, and you, you look at the Scantron test and you're like, okay, first question, is Jesus God? Pretty confident, yes. And Peter kind of gives you a wink. He's like, good start. You know, next question is, did Jesus die on the cross and was he raised from the dead? You're like, yes. Peter's like, good job. And the third question is, which book of the Bible um, is the word Trinity used? And you're like, Matthew, Romans, Ecclesiastes, or none of the above. And you sit there and you're like, come on, think, 
think, think. And you, you just, you're like, Romans is pretty deeply theological. So you, you circle Romans and Peter's like, sorry, it's none of the above. Uh, you're going to hell forever. That's how many Christians operate is do I have the right answers? And if I have the right answers, then I'm a Christian. And that's not the story of the scriptures. Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, old school preacher, he says it brilliantly uh, in his sermon that he preached on 1 John chapter 1, verse 3 about having fellowship with God. He says this, To be a Christian does not merely mean that you hold orthodox opinions on Christian teaching. Let me even put it like this. To believe that your sins are forgiven by the death of Christ is not enough. Even to be sound on the whole doctrine of justification by faith alone, that is not enough. That can be held as an intellectual opinion, and if people merely hold on to a number of orthodox opinions, they are not, I repeat, in the truly Christian position. Finishes with this. The essence of the Christian position and of the Christian life is that we should be able to say, Truly, my fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. The word gospel means good news. And the good news is ultimately that we who did not have God, we who had turned our backs on God, we who had rebelled against God in His grace pursued us and has forgiven us and reconciled us to Himself, adopting us as His beloved children so that we get Him. That's the good news. The good news is not about just a future escaping this earth to go and walk on golden streets somewhere. The good news is you get God now and forever. So the first misconception is the gospel is merely a proposition we have to consent to, but it's ultimately a person that we're called to. The second thing is that the gospel is not that God helps bad people become nice. But the gospel is that God makes dead people new. God doesn't just find some bad people and like, all right, like, let me clean you up a little bit. Let me make you a little nicer, get that smile going. He takes dead people and he brings them life. He makes them new. Join me in Ephesians real quick. Ephesians chapter two. Ephesians 2, um, 1 to 10 are, are, are really important for the Christian to grasp their uh, understanding of their own testimony, their own story. Uh, we, in our church at Restored, we have people share their stories often in the gospel communities on Sundays. And, and it's so important to hear how people share their testimonies. And ultimately, no matter what your experience was, we want to make sure our experience of our testimony, our story of salvation aligns with Scripture. And sometimes the story that we often hear um, in the American world of getting saved is kind of like, I used to struggle with some stuff, then I met Jesus, and I don't struggle as much anymore. You know, I used to be kind of mean, but now I'm kind of nice. This is your spiritual resume Paul gives us in Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1, he says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts. And we were by nature children under wrath, as the others were also. But God 
but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. So no matter your testimony, if you were saved at five years old or 55 years old, your testimony is this, I was dead and God by his grace made me alive. I was dead. I was spiritually dead. I could not choose the right things and God in his great mercy chose me He loved me. He pursued me. He woke me up and raised me from the dead so that I could see for the first time the spiritual realities, life in its fullness, relationship with God. That's our story. It's it's not going from bad to nice, but dead to new. Do you grasp that, brother or sister? Are you living in that new reality? Do we still struggle? Absolutely. But is there a newness to your life that cannot be explained apart from the work of the Spirit of God inside you? See, the gospel is this good news that though we were dead, he made us alive. So how did he do that? How did he take a bunch of dead men and women and make them alive? We have to go back to the beginning. In Genesis 1 and 2, when God creates the first humans, he creates them and says, you know, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. God's desire for the earth was for humans that he created to rule and reign as his representatives. That was his plan. He said, I want, I'm going to make you in my image and your job is to have fun and love me and love others and display my image to the world. And our first parents chose not to do that. They walked away from the source of life himself in rebellion and sinned against God and said, no, we'd rather just do things on our own. It's the same decisions you and I make all the time. It's the life we live before Christ saved those of you who are Christians. And so God, even though the first humans, you have Adam and Eve, they rebel against God. God doesn't just say, fine, forget the plan. They deserve hell. They deserve judgment. Get out of here. God in his grace pursues. In Genesis 3, he promises that this won't be the end of the story. And what he talks about is that the the woman's seed through Eve, there's going to be a human who comes about and redeems and makes all things new out of the mess that they had created. And so we still, God doesn't give up on his plan for that humans would be his representatives, that humans would be the ones ruling and reigning in his image, showing the world off of how beautiful and good he is. So God chooses Abraham. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob's names change to Israel. Israel has his 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. Israel's supposed to be the nation, the people who show the world what God is like, and they fail over and over and over. And yet God, instead of giving up on his plan, so committed to his plan that he would rule through humans that God himself becomes a human through the person of Jesus, the son of God, fully God, fully man. And he, as an Israelite, lives the life that we could not have lived, that no one had lived before, fully obeying the law, fully loving God and loving neighbor. The first one who should have received the blessing of Yahweh at the end of his life is crucified and is on a tree, cursed, crying out, my God, my God, why have you 
forsaken me. Jesus Christ forsaken because of us. The the God-man who was our representative as a human took on our sin and chose that he would be the one who would bear the penalty. He would bear the, the consequences and judgment of God for all of our sin. He painted himself as a perfect representation between God and man, sinless. And on the third day, he raises from the dead. The Father gives him life. The Spirit breathes in him and he comes to life physically. And so now, for those of us who put our faith in Jesus, we're not putting our faith into a dead man. We're putting our faith into the risen Christ. And when you put your faith in Jesus, you are united to him. Union with Christ is the good news of the gospel. And everything good that comes from the consequences of the gospel is a result of our union with him. Why am I an adopted son of God? Because I'm connected to the true son. Why am I forgiven? Because I'm connected to Jesus. Why do I have salvation? Because of Jesus. Why will I one day be glorified? Because I'm connected to Christ. As Paul says in Colossians 3, I'm I'm hidden in him. He is my life. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And this is the good news of the gospel. It's not that he takes bad people and makes you nice. He takes dead men and women and makes us new by uniting us to himself. And it's our faith and it's purely by his grace. That's why there's no boasting in the Christian life. You were dead and he brought you to life. Who gets to boast about that? You don't boast about getting rescued other than boasting in the one who rescued you. My brother, when we were in high school, he got caught up in a riptide out at the beach. 16-year-old dude can't swim his way back in. Lifeguard had to go and get him in front of all of our friends. Lifeguard has to go get my 16-year-old brother and bring him back in because he was helpless caught in a riptide. As my brother gets pulled in by a lifeguard and all of us are around, grateful he's alive, As he walks up, he doesn't walk up with a swag. He isn't like, did you guys see that? Did you you guys see how he rescued me back there? I was doing pretty good, but I'm I'm glad he kind of gave me a boost. No, no, my brother was humbled. He, He walked with a limp for the rest of the day, having to be saved. And this is the beauty of being a Christian. You've got a limp for the rest of your life. There's no swag. I've been saved by grace. I can't look down on anybody. I was dead. He made me alive. But if you were just kind of bad and you cleaned yourself up and made you nice, of course you can look down on others and judge them. But the gospel story says that we're saved by grace. We're united to him so that it creates a complete humility in us and a confidence that he loved us and gave himself for us. Um, I was talking to a gal uh, a few years ago uh, and she In her mid-50s, she got married and then got saved later on in marriage. And so she was married to a a non-believer. And I was listening to her story, trying to understand, like, man, what's that like for 20-some years married to a non-Christian as she loves Jesus? Um, And as she was sharing, she was telling me how amazing of a guy he is. Uh, As a non-Christian, he loves well. He's so nice. He's so kind. He's he's loved her well. He's loved um, the kids well. Um, and, and, And she said, she said, he's so nice. He's this close to becoming a Christian. 
Um, and, and, and in love, I said, I, I get what you're saying, but, but, but he may be too nice. He may be using his niceness as an obstacle to the cross. He may think, if this is what you believe, that the becoming nicer is how you become a Christian. If, if there's a scale that he's almost tip, he's almost in, then he's fundamentally misunderstood the gospel. You don't, you don't nice your way into the kingdom. You repent your way into the kingdom of even your niceness that was rooted in selfish desires. And, and so it's important for us to grasp this, that God does change us. He makes us new. And, and nice, yes, it's a good thing, but love is more important. And this is the person that God wants us. He's making us and shaping us into as he's given us his spirit. Um, the third thing is that the gospel is not the starting point that we walk away from. It's the path we walk along. The gospel is not a starting point that we walk away from, but it's the path that we walk along our entire lives as Christians. Back in Galatians, I should have told you to keep your finger there, but Galatians chapter 2, we see a story um, with, with Paul and Peter that is so crucial for our understanding um, to, to not believe, okay, yeah, I got saved. I heard the gospel back in the day. You know, now when the preacher starts talking about the gospel, I pray for the non-Christians present. No, no, the gospel's for Christians as much as it's for non-Christians. I need to hear the good news every single day. I need to be reminded of it so that my life can continually be conformed by the good news of who Jesus is and what he has done and who I am. And we see this in Galatians chapter two. Paul says this, when I, but when Cephas, came to Antioch, Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch. I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. A lot going on right there. I, I, I hate to get confronted by anybody. Getting confronted by the Apostle Paul, probably not a good day. Why'd this happen? Verse 12. For he regularly ate with Gentiles before certain men came from James but before, excuse me, for he regularly ate with the Gentiles before certain men came from James. However, when they came, he withdrew and separated himself because he feared those from the circumcision party. Then the rest of the Jews joined his hypocrisy so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were deviating from the truth of the gospel, underline that if you've got your Bible, deviating from the truth of the gospel. I told Cephas in front of everybody. There's no, there's no private rebuke going on here. It is a public rebuke. I told Cephas in front of everyone. If you are a Jew, live like a Gentile. If you who are a Jew, excuse me, I'm just excited. If you who are a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you compel Gentiles to live like Jews? Okay, so so, so Peter's caught, Cephas, is, he's caught. True prejudice on the scene right here in Galatia. That, 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 that when Paul saw him, Paul had seen Peter eating with Gentiles, right? Acts 10, God gives Peter this vision. Hey, the Gentiles are a part of the family of God. If the trust in Jesus, the Messiah, it's not just a Jewish story. It's for all nations, going back to Genesis 12, fulfilling the promise of Abraham that the church would be a multi-ethnic community. Peter got that revelation and then he stopped living in it. So much so that he was eating with Gentiles, which was good, but as soon as some Jewish leaders showed up, he was like kind of the high school kid in the cafeteria, 
caught between his, his new friends and the jocks like, sorry guys, and it just ditches his new friends and, and says, sorry guys, I don't know, I was just telling them, you know, what, they got to start eating better and you know, whatever it was. And Paul says, you deviated from the truth of the gospel. Every issue for the Christian is a gospel issue. Paul does not say, Peter, you're acting prejudiced right now. This is really going to stunt the movement of Jesus. You don't want us to get canceled, do you? This is politically incorrect. You better align yourselves with the most recent sociologies, sociologists, their views of, of, of the racial tensions and ethnic tensions in our area. No, Paul looks at him and goes, you've deviated from the gospel. Racism and prejudice, they're not new ideas. They're deviations from the gospel. Why? Because the gospel tells us that every single human being is equally beautiful and equally broken. And racism and prejudice says there's some who are better than others. There are some who deserve more than others. And Paul doesn't say, hey man, I don't know, that's not a good idea. He says, this is a deviation from the gospel. You're not walking in step with the truth of the gospel. Every sin is a result of us not trusting and walking in the truth of the gospel. We need to grasp this. Especially in this season, as so many of the, the racial tensions have resurfaced again and again and again, proving that our nation has not moved on from this stuff. We still are broken and fractured. There are systemic injustices. How do we know that? The gospel tells us. Human beings created the systems. Of course they're broken. They have to be. No human could create a perfect system. So, so the idea for some to deny that there's a mess in our world is crazy if you trust the gospel, you trust the good news that Jesus had to die for everyone even people who wrote the Constitution, that, that everyone is broken and it's a gospel issue. Let me give you a few other quick things to show you that all things come back to the gospel. Think about something like sexual purity, right? Sexual purity. How, how, how would the, uh, the New Testament authors, Jesus, how would the apostles command us to walk in sexual purity, whether you're married or you're single? Well, they don't do this. They, they don't say, hey, you know, you don't want to fool around. You could get somebody pregnant. You, you don't want to get pregnant, right? You could get an STD, right? Like, like the fear piece of here's why you should stay sexually pure because it might mess up your life. It's not how the gospel is applied to sexual purity. First Corinthians 6, the apostle Paul says, flee sexual immorality. Why? Because your body is not your own. It's been purchased with a price, the price of Jesus' own precious blood. Now glorify him with it. The gospel is our motivation for staying sexually pure because this body of mine isn't mine anymore. I've been united to Christ. He purchased me. I don't get to do whatever I want to do in the secrecy of my own room as long as I'm not hurting anybody. No, no, no. This body's not mine anymore. It's Jesus's. He's purchased it. He has all rights to it. And so my sexual purity comes out of a glory, glorifying him, saying, thank you. This is, this is for my joy, and I will trust you with it. Sexual purity, conflict, right? How, how do we deal with conflict and unforgiveness and bitterness when you have an issue with a friend? Uh, our, our secular society would say, you should forgive. 
Why? Because if you withhold forgiveness, it's like poison in your soul and it's going to hurt you. So you should forgive them for your sake. That's not how the gospel is applied. In Ephesians 4.32, Paul says, Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. Why should I forgive someone who wrongs me? Because I've wronged the King of Kings every single day of my life and he never withholds forgiveness from me. He never withholds it. He never keeps a record of my debts. He has chosen to forgive me and then forget it so that he can have me. So now, whether my enemy feels like my wife or my kids or my friends or that person that emails me or texts me about something that I'm doing wrong as a leader in the church, I can forgive them. Why? Because Christ has forgiven me for every single thing I've done. And when I'm confronted and I see the sin in my own heart, Charles Spurgeon, one of my favorite quotes, he says, don't get, don't get mad when somebody thinks ill of you, for you're far worse than they know. That's a gospel reality. The gospel tells me I'm broken. So when someone confronts me and calls me out on my sin, I don't have to be defensive. The cross of Jesus Christ forever cries out, Brad's a mess. You're a mess. So when someone lovingly goes, hey, you're a mess, you don't need to go, What? Well, you're a mess too. No, no, I can sit there. I can listen because Jesus has forgiven me. He has cleansed me. He's for me. So I can listen. In conflict, I don't need to fight back. I can receive hard words and extend forgiveness because Christ himself has not just extended forgiveness. He, he confronted my dead reality by living and dying and rising for me. Marriage. Uh, there's a lot of good marriage advice out there. Uh, our secular world would say, find somebody who's compatible, right? Find somebody who's, who's compatible and then maybe, you know, figure out the five love languages of love and you're good. Like that you're, you're set. And, and, and Paul in Ephesians, while some of that is good and some of it's helpful, the gospel would say you're not going to be compatible with any sinner. <laughs> there's, there's no compatibility when you put two sinners in a room, two selfish people. There's no compatibility there. And this is why Paul commands us in Ephesians 5, not to find someone that you're compatible with, but husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. I don't need to look at my wife and go, ah, I don't feel like we're really compatible right now. I need to look to the cross, realizing that Jesus and I were not compatible. There was nothing in me that Jesus saw and said, I think we can, I think we'll be good together. He saw a rebel, a sinful man living selfishly, building his own kingdom. And Jesus said, I'm going to die for you because I love you. And it's the same in marriage. We look at our spouse, even in the difficult moments, go, I'm going to die for you because I love you. It may feel like death right now, this argument, but I'm going to push through and I'm not giving up. I'm not running. We're going to pursue growth. We're going to pursue each other because Christ never gives up on us. So we do this in marriage. We do this in our discontentment. Man, this season is so hard. This season has been so hard. And I know so many of us are struggling with discontentment. It's like, man, my old life, the things I don't get to do anymore that I used to do, it's so hard. And one of the ways our secular society would say, here's how to grow in contentment. Think about how good you have it compared to everybody else, right? At least you've got this going on. And think about the other people that don't. Man, you should feel good about yourself. Hebrews 13 tells us not to be filled with the love of money, but rather be content 
Why? Because God himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Coming back to the gospel, why can I be content in any situation is because God has said to me, I'm never leaving you and I'm never forsaking you. My contentment doesn't look, doesn't work by me looking down on others and being like, thank God I'm not like them. Thank God I've got it better than they do. My contentment, no matter how hard of a season, is I have God. Jesus Christ is with me. No matter how hard, no matter how dark of a season I'm in, I can find contentment by knowing that he's with me. He's given me a spirit that he's never leaving. He'll never forsake me. How about with work? Our secular world would say, hey, do your best to climb to the top. Get as many people under you as possible so you can retire early and have a great life. Philippians 2, Paul says, have the mind of Christ who, who, who didn't count equality with God, but instead humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Jesus didn't climb a ladder. He descended a ladder to save and rescue a people. In our workplace, we're called to do the same. We're called to not waste our time, to not waste the opportunities, but to see our coworkers, our boss, our employees as men and women that we can serve and love. Not, not trying to escape as quickly as possible, but to do our best job possible so that even through our work that we would find joy in the way God's wired us. And we'd be able to love people and love our community in the way we work, humbling ourselves, not climbing on top of people's head, but using the power and privilege that Jesus has given you to serve as many people as possible, to see as many lives flourish, because that's what Christ has done with us. He didn't use his power and privilege to look down on us and get away from us, but he used his power and privilege to serve us and save us. And now we get to reflect him, rule and reign on this earth with him and with parenting. A lot of tips on parenting. If you've got young kids, man, I've got two, seven and six year old. And there's so much advice, so little of it's rooted in the good news of Jesus. So easy to raise a Pharisee. It's so easy to raise rule followers. But that's not our job as parents. Our job is to raise kids who love and delight in the person of Jesus. And it's, it, it requires his spirit to show us. Because we can say it a million times, but we need his help to reveal this to us. Pre-COVID, um, my, my boy and my girl, uh, we just gotten back from our church gathering and they were in our kids' ministry. And I asked them, hey, you know, what you, would you guys learn today? What would you guys do? And, and um, I asked my boy and, and he said, uh, you know, we learned, Dad, about the Pharisee and the tax collector and how the Pharisee, he was a bad guy. You know, he, he was praying. He was, very, he was very mean. And he said, you know, I, I'm better than you. And the tax collector was sad. Uh, and he, he, was, he knew he was a bad person and, and God loved that, you know. Um, and I was like, well, that's pretty good. Well done, man. I looked to my daughter. I said, hey, baby, what did, what did you learn? Um, and, and, and she said, I don't, I don't remember. And my boy starts laughing at her. Like, she doesn't even remember, right? And I feel like the Spirit gave me just a quick moment of grace in that. To look my boy in the eye and go, hey, my boy, which one do you think you are? The Pharisee or the tax collector? And God used that moment to, to, to break the gospel into his heart in a way that all of my other teachings weren't able to because he was caught. His Pharisee heart was on display, even though he knew the right answer. I gotta be the, I gotta be the tax collector who's uh, you know, humble and, and repentant. 
but his actions reveal the Pharisee. And, and I, I would fail my son deeply if I went, good job, boy, for remembering the lesson. Shame on you, girl. You better remember next time. That would create more and more the Pharisee in his heart. And our job is not to applaud and try to make him as nice and smart as he can be, but to show him his heart and to show him, you need Jesus, my boy, just like daddy and mommy do. We come back to the gospel. We don't come back to random principles about how to get them into the best college, how to make sure their life succeeds. Yeah, that, that God will help work that stuff out. My primary task is to show him the beauty and grace of Jesus Christ. By the way, I love my wife. And the way I talk to him and show him that daddy has needs just like he needs needs. And we need to run to Jesus with those needs. Friends, the gospel is not good advice that we hold on to. It's good news we proclaim to all people. Let the gospel, the good news that you have God, who you once were at enmity with, he's loved you, he's saved you. Would you not go, oh, this this makes me feel good. I'm going to kind of hold on to that. Would you grasp that this is a true story that you are not called to just hide, but to proclaim, to share with all people for their own joy, that you wouldn't buy into the lie of like, well, it works for me. I don't know if it's really going to work for them. Let us proclaim the good news. And and, and I believe a deep diagnostic question for you is, is do you get of how do you get the gospel? Is it really sinking in? Is do you share it with others? God's God's hardwired us to be evangelists. It's why Yelp exists. You get back from a restaurant. Best place ever. You share good news with people all the time. Without being paid, without being guilted into it, without fear. You do it out of joy. Would we do the same thing with the good news? Especially in this season of brokenness. Think of our neighbors, our community, the world that is desperately in need of Jesus, would we not keep this going, wow, this has really helped me? Would we share it? Would we lovingly proclaim it to all people that you are dead and you need life? Would you trust in Jesus? He's for you. He's for your joy. Would you trust in him? It's purely by his grace. Would we be the people who walk into this? If you're not a Christian, I, I, I would beg you today, would you not just go, okay, yep, good, I got it up here now. I, I got my notes down. No, no. Would, would you trust in him? Would you fall upon the grace of Jesus Christ, realizing that you've got nothing else? Like Paul says, everything's rubbish compared to knowing Christ. It's the greatest truth that we're invited to walk into. Would we believe him? Would we enjoy him? And would we share him with all others because the good news is that we have him purely by his love and his grace. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Um, You're kind to us. You never give up on us. You keep pursuing us. Thank you for your love. God, would you save men and women listening in today who maybe have held you at an intellectual opinion level? Would they get that you want them? Would they trust you with their lives, not with just some future reality, but with the current mess that they are? Not thinking they can clean themselves up, but just going, Jesus, I need you. Save me. Jesus, I need you. Forgive me. 
Jesus, for those of you, for those who have just continually felt like the gospel is just white noise, would you wake us up again to the beauty of the good news? We love you. It's in your beautiful name.